Good morning. It is good to see you here this morning. We are always thankful for your presence and thankful for another opportunity that's ours to assemble together. What a privilege it is to be in the presence of our God and fellowship one with another. God has always been interested in what we think. He wants to know. He's interested in hearing from us. He cares about us. He communicates with us. And ultimately, he seeks to commune with us. And so what we think about God matters to him. What we think God has done matters or will do. It matters to God. You can see that through the questions that he asks in the Bible. In Genesis 18, 17, he says, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Here's something God is going to make a decision about, and God is going to act in a particular way. And then his question is, should I hide that from Abraham? And he doesn't. He actually tells Abraham what he plans to do. In Matthew 21 and verse 25, Jesus asked a group of individuals, the baptism of John, whence is it? Is it from heaven or of men? Similar question, Matthew 22 and verse 42, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And then there's John 6, 66, when individuals walked away from the Lord, it was Jesus who turned to the apostles and asked, will you also go away? The point is simply this, God is interested. Jesus is interested in what you think and what you feel and how you process information. In Matthew 16, verses 13 to 15, he asked the apostles two questions. One of them was, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? He wanted to know, what's the popular opinion? What's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? He wanted to know that. His follow-up to them was, who do you say that I am? It's in a similar vein, or at the very least with that in mind, that we began our sermon this morning with a question. And the question is posed to you this morning, what do you think about the image of God? What do you think about the image of God? That's the question before us this morning. I'm going to ask you to engage with me and actually answer the question. How can you do that? Well, let's take a test. It'll be painless. You don't need any paper. It's a personal test. It's a quiet test. In fact, it is purely an internal test. These are things that you'll just think about. Don't share your answers. It's an internal test of the heart. It works best if you're honest, obviously. And if it helps, close your eyes to focus while you think. You're going to give an answer to a series of questions. That's how it'll work. And just give and accept the first answer that pops into your mind. You don't have to fudge it. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to do anything else with it. Just accept whatever comes into your mind as your answer. That's what it is. Nobody else will know. Question number one. When I say the word human, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Question number two, assign a numerical value between one and 100 for the following. A Russian person, an Indian person, a European person, an African person, a Hispanic person. Question number three, assign a numerical value between one and 100 for the following. A rich person, a poor person, an old person, a young person, an overweight person, a slim fit person, a beautiful woman, 
an average-looking woman, a handsome man, an average-looking man. Now, if you've closed them, open your eyes, and let's appreciate this fact. None of these things have anything to do with being made in the image of God. But they often have bearing on what we think of ourselves and what we think of others. Our physical focus often makes us miss God's spiritual truths. Our physical focus causes us to major in the physical and minor in the spiritual. It often makes us doubt ourselves. And it sometimes makes our, or mistakes, our ability for God's, or our inability for God's ability. So we began by asking, what does God's image mean to you? The rest of the sermon will be, what does God's image mean? Three points we'll notice this morning about what Scripture says God's image means. Hopefully by the end, it'll mean that to you. Point number one. God's image means you are good enough. Lowe's slogan, and it's a catchy one, it'll keep you in their store for a while, never stop improving. It's a business slogan to sell stuff. It's not a personal model for life. But we are told and we begin to believe that we all need to be something other than what we are. We need to be faster, bigger, stronger. Taller, smarter, smaller, prettier, richer. Doesn't matter where we are. Doesn't matter who we are. The world convinces us we are not good enough. And what this does is it moves us and moves us to think and behave a certain way. Among the things it does is it causes us to doubt ourselves. Uncertainty is our general disposition. Not sure is our normative state. Can you? I doubt it. Will you? I don't know. We doubt ourselves. Number two, we diminish our ability. Can't has become our personal motto. I can't. Mm-mm, not me. There's no way I could. No, somebody else could, but not me. And number three, we dismiss our victories. Even when we do, we didn't. Even when we did, we don't. Even when we accomplish it, we follow it with, eh, it wasn't much. It barely made it. No, it didn't mean much. I didn't do, I got totally lucky on that one. Even when we do, we don't. It would be one thing if this was just us, but it seems to be an issue for humanity. You can see this also in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, look at Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse number 7. Now, we start in verse number 7 because you already know the first six verses. The six verses are, the first six is when Moses goes out to uh, the back of the mountain and he is there feeding his, his sheep and tending to them and he sees the bush burning but not consumed and he turns and he's going to approach it and he's stopped by the bush. Moses, Moses, take off your shoes, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that's about where we stop generally, but God is still talking. So let's pick up in verse number 7, and this is what you'll read. The Lord said, 
if you would, focus on the pronouns that reference God. Things like I and me and my. Listen to what God says to Moses. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Whose people are they? They're God's people. Who saw the affliction? God did. I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good land and a large land flowing with milk and honey. He's going to destroy those seven nations in the land that are listed, the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now he says, now behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That entire section is about God and his ability and his power and his deliverance. And who does Moses focus on? Not God. Moses focuses on himself. Beginning in verse number 11 is the first of four things that Moses says to God with regards to this deliverance. Moses says in verse number 11, he said to God, but who am I that I should bring, go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt? Oh, that that were the only thing. A few verses later, Moses will say, but who are you? I go down there and I tell them that you sent me. They'll say, what's his name? What should I say? A little further in chapter 4, in verse number 1, Moses said, what is if they don't believe me? They won't believe me. Who am I? Who are you? They won't believe me. Chapter 4 and verse number 10, Moses says, I can't speak well. Verse number 13, Moses finally says to God, send someone else. It would be one thing if this was the only occurrence of this kind of event in Scripture. It's just not. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, you will find similar things, if not the exact same things. God will say to Jeremiah, Before thee I formed thee in whom I knew thee, and I called thee to be a prophet unto the nations. And Jeremiah will say to God, I cannot speak. I am but a child. Oh, that it was the only time that it was in Scripture, but it's not. Gideon does the same thing. An angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, sat under a tree, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Go, thou man of valor, the Lord is with thee. You're going to deliver. And Gideon says to the Lord, the Lord looked upon him, and Gideon said, But I am, how can I do it? My family is poor in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Let me ask you a question. What about you? Can you relate? When you hear God's spiritual truths, when you hear God's call to you, to his children, to go do his bidding, where do your thoughts go? What do your words say? And what deeds follow? How often do you find yourself doubting yourself? How often do you find yourself diminishing your ability? How often do you find yourself dismissing your accomplishments? How often have you told God, I can't? God said, go into all the world, teach the gospel. I can't. I can't speak well. I'm just a child. I don't know enough. How often have you heard God's calls to be something and you say, I can't do that. I can't be that. I can't stop that. I can't start that. There's no way I can. How often? 
Like Moses, I can't speak well. They won't believe me. Like Jeremiah, I'm a child. I don't know enough. Like Gideon, I'm poor. My family's poor. We're not prominent. We don't have a name. I'm insignificant. You know, when we began this series, it was about truth. Truth has died in the streets. That's what it was about. And why did we talk about truth? Because truth has to be believed. Truth has to be believed and then lived. And when you find the truth, that's why the Bible says you, you, you search for it, you seek it, you find it. Buy the truth and sell it not. Never give up the truth. Once you find out what the truth is, here's the truth. They all succeeded. You know what Moses did? He went down into Egypt and delivered God's people. You know what Jeremiah did? He spoke God's word faithfully. You know what Gideon did? He defeated the Midianites. That's exactly what he did with 300 men. The truth is they were able to do what God called them to do. Let me ask you this. What's the truth about you? The truth is you can do whatever God has called you to do. The truth is you can be whoever God has called you to be. The truth is you can give up anything that God says give up, and you can start and do anything God says start and do. And the truth is physical attributes have nothing to do with it. It's his image that does. God assured Moses and Jeremiah and Gideon, I will be with you. And he has promised you the same thing. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Being made in the image of God means you are good enough. You are capable. And with God's help, you can do all things. Number two, God's image means God has justified you, so you don't have to justify yourself. How often do you find yourself explaining yourself? How often do you find yourself defending yourself? How often do you find yourself trying to make sure that other people know who you are and what you're about while telling them and making sure they do understand what you're not about and who you are not and what you did and what you did not do and why you should be acceptable to them because you're justified. It's our physical focus that makes us feel compelled to fix our shortcomings. And the result is we miss God's spiritual work in us because we're trying to do it physically. We're doing it, and so God can't do it. God's trying to do it spiritually, but we keep missing him. Notice, if you will, the book of Romans in chapter 3, and that's Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 3, he is continuing the discussion from Romans 1 and 2, in which he has proven that the Gentiles are under sin, Romans chapter 1. He's proven that the Jews are under sin, Romans chapter 2. He's concluded they're all under sin, chapter 3, verse 9. We pick up verse 23, where he repeats the same thing. He says in verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He goes on to say, being justified, how? Freely. How? By his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. How were we justified? Freely by God's grace. But continue to what Paul's point is in these next two verses. Paul says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, 
to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Why would he do that? Why would he do it this way? Verse 26 explains. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Question, who justifies you? Is it you or is it Jesus? Or is it your faith in him? Paul says one of them will demonstrate the righteousness of God. One of those will. Jesus didn't come to die for the planet. I don't hate the planet. I'm not saying let's not do good things, but he didn't come to die for the planet. It's important you understand that. He didn't come to die for animals. I don't hate animals. You can like them, love them if you want to. Jesus didn't come to die for animals. Jesus didn't take on himself the nature of angels. He didn't come for angels. Why did God put on flesh? For humans. Jesus died for humans because we share the image of God. It's through Christ's death that God demonstrated his righteousness. Have you ever heard or asked yourself, why did God? And you just fill in the blank. Sometimes people look at the world, look at the evil in the world, look at the things going on in the world, and they say, now why would God? If God is so good, why did he make a world like this? And if God is so good, why did he let people do this? And so what they're doing is they're calling God into court, if you will, and attempting to examine him as to why he did what he did. God is the one under question, if you will. It's not the first time Abraham asked it this way. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18, 25. Job has a question or two about God and his actions in the world. Even here in Romans chapter 9, Paul will discuss God made choices, and sometimes people don't agree with the choice God made. But you know what the point of Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 is? It says that he might be just. What is it that proves that God is just? that his ways are equal, that he is right fundamentally in his essence and in his actions. What is it that proves that? The cross of Christ. Paul says that Christ and his death on the cross for humanity is what God holds up as evidence that, yes, he made the world, and then when the world went into sin, he took on flesh and died for his creation. Can you get more just and right than that? It shows his righteousness. It declares his justice, that he might be just and the justifier. Now, who is it that makes you as you ought to be? Is that going to be you or is that going to be God through Christ? What the Scripture tries to help us appreciate is we couldn't fix it. And so, notice Romans chapter 5, and listen to what he says in verses 6, 7, and 8. In the same discussion, in fact, as you can see in chapter 5 and verse number 1, Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith. It's the same discussion. Justification is by faith. Faith in who? Faith in God. Faith in Christ. In fact, when did that come? Romans chapter 5 and verse number 6. For while we were yet sinners, while we were hopeless, helpless, while we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us. When? In that while we were yet sinners, when we were without strength, 
when we could not help ourselves, God commended his love toward us in that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. It's failure to understand God's righteousness and justification based on Christ's blood and his grace. It leads us then to seek out justification ourselves. And so, as I'm working on my never stop improving my physical self to be worthy, I then come to a place where I make myself that. And so, I use my achievement. And so, I'll tell you what I've done, what I've accomplished, who I am. If that doesn't work, I'll use my goodness. And so, we'll focus on, tell each other how charitable we are. You know what the good things I've done? Want to get my name on the list? Make sure they know I did it. I was good. Or our possessions. You notice I got the new one. Did you see it? Look what I got. You know I've made it because look at my possessions or our righteousness. And so we'll tell each other what we avoid. No, I don't do that. Mm -mm, I'm never part of that. I'm above that. Whether we know it or not, what's happening here is our physical focus leads us to justify ourselves. Instead of accepting and appreciating God's righteousness, we miss out on his righteousness and go about and establish our own we also miss the fact that God's actions toward us is why we were yet sinners, and therefore we couldn't actually fix it ourselves anyway, but we keep trying. Here's what it looks like. You have your Bibles. Look at Luke chapter 18. Here's a picture of it. In Luke chapter 18 and verse number 9, self-justification is seen and illustrated by our Lord. In verse number 9 of Luke 18, the Bible says, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. How did they get righteous? They trusted in themselves to do it. Here's the second caveat, and they viewed others with contempt. That's what'll happen. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a, a publican or a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes toward heaven, simply beat his chest, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Our self-justification has this two-fold process to it. On the one hand, we tell God how good we are. On the other hand, we thank God we're not like other people. What this leads to is ultimately us being okay. You know, my evil is not like other people's. My sin is not like other people's sins. My failure is not like other people's. In fact, since you're the justifier, you will always be okay, even when you're not doing right. In fact, you could be in the midst of sinning against God, and then you could just tell yourself, I don't do it as much as other people. I don't do it as often as other people. I don't, I don't do, a, I also do a lot of good to offset it, and after all, nobody is perfect. The result of self-justification is you have to now make up your rules for justification. So you make up the rules that justify, and then you'll try to bind those on other people. And you try to live right, but it won't work because you're not changing your heart. You're trying to do right, but you're using these outward uh, 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 efforts and these physical things that you've made up out of your own mind. If you have your Bible, look at Colossians 2 for a discussion of that. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is telling the church, don't let people do this to you. 
Brethren, do not allow people to come in and try to bind their man-made thoughts and their made-up rules onto you as if they came from God to be pleasing to them. Don't do that. Chapter 2 and verse number 16, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stands on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. He goes on to say, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, those elementary principles of the world, those man-made rules, those man-made ideas where other people judge you based on their things. Paul says, if you've died to that, and you should have, he says, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and ordinances or teachings of men? Paul says in verse 23, by way of conclusion, these matters, these are matters which have to be sure, and you'll want to note this part, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's unpack that for just a moment. Paul says these man-made rules, they appear wise. They have the appearance of wisdom, and they do, because they always have a line to be drawn. Don't cross it. Don't do that. Don't act that. Don't, you can't go that. And so it looks like as long as you stay short of the line, you'll be good. And you hear Christians talk like this. I just want to know how much. I just want to know how many. I just want to know how frequent. And that way I can meet it and be done. People try to live their lives like this. And Paul says, it has the appearance of wisdom. But note the last phrase. He says they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. Chances are good the struggle is not something physical, although that's the way the world operates. The world is always after the, the, uh, uh, the effect. They, they never deal with the underlying issue that prompted the action. They never get down to the cause. They always talk up here. And so this is how they can tell you, be this. Bigger, smaller, shorter, taller, da, 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 da. you go do that and you'll be good. The real problem is not the exterior, it's the heart that's moving you to. And the reason it looks like it works is if somebody just tells you, well, just don't put that in your house. If that's your struggle, take it out of your house. That's great. And by taking it out of your house, immediately you've been effective. Have you ever gone on a diet? 
Have you ever said to yourself, I'm going to not spend this money? Have you ever said to yourself, I'm not going to drink this Coca-Cola? Have you ever said to yourself, I'm going to stop today, I'm never going to do it again? And almost immediately after you finish your sentence, your mind says, don't you want one? <laughs> You've never been more hungry than the moment you say, I'm going on a diet. You've never been more hungry. I, you're, right now, you're starving. You haven't eaten in 50 days right now, right after the sentence. You've never wanted to spend money right after somebody says you need a budget. You almost want to say to them, before I go on this budget, let me take this last check and spend it all. Because I'm never going to spend another dime, clearly, ever, I'm going on a budget. It's why it has the appearance of working. What Paul is addressing, though, is it doesn't change the heart. And what most people won't accept is they've been trying to fix the physical without the heart that's motivating the physical actions. And Paul says it has no effect. You're going to give in as a recovering Oreo eater, an addict. I can say it, addict. I know firsthand, taking them out of the house only works temporarily. If you don't change your mind, they'll be back. I don't know how they'll be back. You don't even need to go to Walmart, but you're at Walmart. You need nails, but they don't sell those on the cookie aisle. And somehow your cart's over there. And I don't even know how they jumped in. I don't know how that happened. Maybe you ask your daughter, do you want some Oreos? I'm not going to eat them, but if you could bring them to the house, I'd love to look at them and smell them. I'm not going to eat them. I don't know. But you've got to change your heart. That's the motivation. And the beautiful thing is you can because you share the image of God. If you're unwilling to do this, you're going to keep floundering and failing, and you're going to miss God's great ability to work in you and for him to justify because you're going to keep trying to do it yourself. If you have the time, read Romans 9 and listen to Paul and in the chapter 10, talk about his brethren. Paul says, my heart's desire for them is that they might be saved, but they're going to miss out on God because they won't submit to his righteousness. They're going to go about and establish their own righteousness. And in establishing their own, they're going to miss the righteousness of God. If you want to be helped, Friends, listen, it's sharing the image of God is the reason that God justified you. That's what it means. It means God justified you, so you don't have to justify yourself. Number three, God's image establishes your worth. Physical focus causes us to assign different values to ourselves and to others. Maybe it was lost on you. Maybe, as you were contemplating those answers, as you were thinking about those thoughts, maybe in your mind, you didn't include you. Maybe you were thinking about each category as a category unto itself, but chances are real good, you fit some of them. Whatever value you assign, wherever you fit, then that's the value you assigned you. And sometimes people don't even realize what they're saying about themselves. 
If it was your category and you assigned a number, then that's you. And what do you think about you? God's image established is your worth. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 4, the Bible says, For every house is built by some man, but he who built all things is God. God is the builder of the house of creation. God is the builder of all things. Now, hold that thought in your mind. John 1, 1 through 3, Jesus made it. The Word made flesh. He made it all. All things are made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So, hold in your mind Genesis 1. Grab the creation, the galaxies, the cosmos. So many, we still can't number them. So vast, there are so many zeros, it just becomes mind-boggling. They put X's and things to try to tell you, yeah, to that power. And it's so vast and so, it, it's beyond almost human capability to grasp when you talk about the creation that God has made. Now, if you can hold that in your mind, also hold that the one who made it came to earth and took on flesh. Now, he is talking to other human beings, and he says to them, what is a man profited if he gained the whole ordered creation and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The one asking is the one who made both. All of that and the people he's asking. What is a soul worth? According to Scripture and according to Jesus, that soul is worth everything he made and more. The one who made it is the one who is talking. He asked the question, and he says, nothing that I have made is equal to one soul. Peter would say, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by the traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. How much does a soul cost? You know, it's interesting that the one who made the sun and the moon and the stars couldn't redeem souls with the sun, moon, stars. He said, that's not enough. What would it take? The precious blood of Jesus. That's the cost. God taking on flesh, dying. That's the cost. Now, can you imagine that the worth of a soul would diminish based on the piece of dirt it's housed in? That's what happens when the focus is physical. That somehow that shell would diminish the spirit. How could the lesser be thought more important than the greater? Matthew 23, you hear the Lord have a conversation with the Pharisees in which he is upbraiding them for their behavior. Verses 15 to 22, if you were to read the whole, they say things like this. If you swear by the temple, now nah, that's nothing. But if you swear by the gold the temple is made out of, well, now you're in debt. To which Jesus says, you fools and blind, whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. 
they would then say, well, if you swear by the altar, well, then that's nothing. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, well, now then you're guilty. To which Jesus would say, you fools and blind, whether it's greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Whoso swears by the temple sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. There is a sense in which you cannot say something about humanity without saying that about God. That's kind of the Lord's point. What diabolical lie would we have to accept to believe that the priceless spirit of any human being could be diminished by the shell in which it's housed? Which is greater, the image of God or the shell? Might be good to be reminded that the body was made from dust and is returning to dust, and the spirit is the image of God and returning to the one who gave it. And as Paul says, we are his offspring. Which leads to the question, how beautiful must a soul be to be the offspring of God? God is interested in what we think, and so he asks us questions. Sometimes those questions are asked to teach us. We began with a question, so let's end with the same. What does being made in the image of God mean to you? Hopefully, it means what it means to God. It means you're good enough. It means you can be anything God wants you to be. It means you can do anything God wants you to do. Hopefully, it means that you are justified by God, and so you don't have to prove yourself, justify yourself, convince people that you are worthy of their love, care, efforts, and so forth. God justifies. Hopefully, you can stop justifying yourself. Be made in the image of God means your soul is worth every physical, material thing that God created. And in fact, it's worth more. It's worth more than the sun, the moon, and the stars, and everything else that's made. And I'm not suggesting to you on this point that the collective of humanity is worth more. Jesus is saying one soul is worth everything else that's made. Just one. There's somewhere between six, seven, eight billion souls on the planet. What it also means is that every other human being you meet and every other human being you know is also made in the image of God. You look around this room when you fellowship with your brethren, when you go out into all the world Every human being is made in the image of God. And since we are his offspring, to some degree and in some way, when you look at a human being, you're seeing his father. You're seeing God. It might be the case this morning that you're not a Christian. If it is, then friends, you need to be. The whole point of all of this is so that you could get out of sin the whole point of all of this is so you could stop justifying yourself and you could come to God and let him do it. Would you let God make you all right? Would you let God make you as you ought to be? Would you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? John 8, 24, Jesus says, you believe not that I am, you'll die in your sins. Friends, we don't want that for you. God doesn't want that for you. Please don't die in your sins. 
believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you'll repent of your sins, if you'll change your heart, change your mind, Luke 13, 3. If you'll be sorry about your sin against God, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. That'll lead you to repentance. You know it's interesting that only you can be. I think about Luke 15 sometimes. I think about the boy in the pig's pen. You know he didn't talk to them. He talked to himself. You know he didn't apologize to them. He got up and he apologized to his father. You know you're the only one who can sorrow over sin. And if you've sinned against God, we beg you, allow yourself to feel sorry about that. Allow that to get you up out of that pig's pen and come home. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water. Baptize for the forgiveness of your sins and let God save you this morning. If you've never done that, we beg you to. But if you have, if you have, would you stop doubting yourself? Would you stop diminishing yourself? Would you stop believing that you can't when God says you can and God says, I will be with you? Moses, Jeremiah, Gideon, and a host of others did, and you can too. We can help you in any way this morning. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.